We all bear responsibility. We are harming trans kids right now. It is happening. We are responsible for that to the extent that we choose not to act. But if we choose to act only on the very narrow terms in which they are being represented as in peril today, then we are hiding in our shame at the fact that we have still not learned to build a world big enough and strong enough to smile upon and say yes to the fact of what trans children want. And for us to say that we want them in the world is to build that world for them and to conceive that they are people. to the deaf panel patrons thank you so much for your support we could not do any of this without you and if you're listening to this and you are not a patron that's because we've unlocked it if you'd like to support our work you can become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod and if you want to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes or follow us at death panel underscore so today we're joined by very good friend of the panel jules gill peterson Jules, welcome back to the Death Panel. Thanks for having me back. Sorry, I only ever come back when something horrible happens. <laughs> we need to, yeah, we have to have you on in sunnier circumstances. Yeah, yeah, we can't keep right, meeting that's like just this. like Death Panel brand, but um. yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, and if you're a new listener, you may not be familiar with Jules's work. Um, she is an associate professor of history at Johns Hopkins University author of the book Histories of the Transgender Child, general co-editor of the journal Transgender Studies Quarterly. So I'm glad we could have you on today to talk about the latest wave of attacks on trans life, like the letter that people may have seen going around this last week, which is a letter from Texas Governor Greg Abbott that introduces a, quote, formal attorney general opinion that gender affirming health care for trans kids is, quote unquote, child abuse. So just to be clear, this is not a law. They tried to pass a law like this last year and failed. This is instead a sort of hardcore formal posturing. And these things are dangerous because while many dismiss stuff like this as being largely symbolic, letters like these are often more deeply harmful because they can't be struck down, challenged, or killed in committee. They help solidify consensus. They give other people ideas about how to make the same arguments. So we're going to get into that. But for context, before we get into the details of that letter from Texas Governor Abbott and Attorney General Paxton, I'd like us to start by talking through the current situation leading up to what happened last week with this letter. As we talked about recently with Melissa Jira Grant, these attempts to create broad legal structures at the state level to eliminate trans people from public life, many of which are specifically not just attacks on children in schools like bathroom or sports bills, and not just attacks on healthcare like bans on puberty blockers. These are also frameworks of widespread surveillance, mandatory reporting, criminalization of parents for supporting their trans kids in the name of parental rights, and the sort of deputizing on citizens to report on their neighbors. And this isn't a new phenomenon. It's been building for a while, and Democrats are really doing all they can to avoid weighing in on this meaningfully, um, essentially doing nothing as these attacks have increased 
over the years, 2020 saw 79 different anti-trans measures proposed. 2021, that count doubled with 147. I think this year the number is roughly 280 proposals, but I think that count is higher now. And this is telling that I had a hard time finding a updated number. So Jules, would you mind giving us your overall assessment of what is going on here? You know, what is the sort of dominant or mainstream way this is being framed? And what do you feel is actually happening? I know we've touched on this in past conversations, but for the sake of both new and old listeners, I think it bears repeating. Yeah, I mean, it's, and I just want to say, I think it's overwhelming to a lot of people. And that's actually part of the political logic here is that, you know, I talk to people a lot who are, you know, sort of broadly, those kinds of like, in in my heart, I support trans people, or maybe even (laughs) no trans people and don't, you know, but, but kind of are just taken aback by, um, in, in the way that being taken aback by things and not doing anything about them is like an American centrist tradition. Um, but, you know, I think there's this sort of feeling right now that like, well, things can't actually be this bad, you know, things can't actually be this dire, right. you know, we have rights in this country and, <laughs> you know, it's sort of that kind of like, you know, Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. Ruth Bader Ginsburg kind of like, you know, if Hillary had won, we'd be at brunch crowd. I think that sort of thinks that like, well, ultimately, you know, justice always prevails and, you know, things have been improving for LGBT people. So like, clearly this is just some sort of cynical culture war issue. And I think a lot of people also, you know, generally think that this is a sort of minority rights issue because that's how the United States likes to talk about it. That trans people, of course, are a small population. And as much as they are being targeted in some places, you know, that's something that that they have to deal with or that, you know, maybe we'll champion for them, but that this isn't part of a broader strategy. And that's what I think is so dangerous in our first sort of clue is that this is part of a much broader, uh, both American and global political strategy, right? Here in the U.S., this is the unfinished business of the Reagan revolution. This is the evangelical new right that has been working over time since the 1970s or maybe even earlier to install a Christian ethno state in the United States. And so, you know, they've been working on multiple fronts and, you know, we see how close we are now to abortion rights being effectively scuttled. And alongside that, anti-trans politics are a way to install an authoritarian kind of police state, right? That can compel people in order to access public life to behave or comport themselves in very narrow evangelical conservative understandings of things like gender and personhood and sexuality and morality. And so that's happening. It's also, you know, part of a broader uh, anti-democracy moment that we're seeing in this country where white supremacist groups um, and other sorts of groups that don't actually support democracy in any meaningful way are, you know, now seeing that this is a great issue for them. And it's also a place where I think there's a sort of widespread, you know, kind of uniformity across the political spectrum. Being anti-trans is not, you know, a position that like any particular part of the political spectrum has a monopoly on. And I think this is, you know, Mm -hmm. one of my explanations for why Democrats just actually don't give a shit about this is because they actually don't give a shit about this, right? Like, there's that kind of truism that when people tell you who they are, eventually you have to listen. And I really think that, you know, we've been seeing this, right? Like, there's a whole pundit class of journalists who are sort of like, 
the just asking questions folks who are like, you know, have for a long time been pushing the kind of proverbial Overton window and whipping up moral panics around trans people, right? And they never are the ones proposing these bills. They're never the ones, you know, enacting these policies. They're never the ones endorsing them. And they always, you know, go conspicuously quiet on Twitter for a week when stuff like this happens. And so we've become <laughs> good at saying like, hey, Jesse Single, hey, Abigail Schreier, hey, Barry Weiss, like, do you take any responsibility for creating this climate where you're laundering extremism? And I actually think that's also what Democrats and other centrists sort of people are doing in this political culture. And so I think one of the, the ways I want people to think about this moment also is that like, even if you support trans folks like in your heart um, or culturally <laughs> or personally, you're complicit or even with financially yeah. you know you can well, shop at trans businesses yeah <laughs> oh right i mean like the the bar for just quietist kind of democrats isn't very high i mean they don't really they don't really see you know they're not necessarily gonna take a stand in favor of these bills but i mean i think the thing is like we all know right that biden is there's no chance in the world that he's gonna mention this and i hate to make predictions but there's like no way for example he'd mention this in the state of the union you can't get this on like the, like the thing is they're not prioritizing it because they think at best it doesn't help them and at worst it hurts them somehow yeah and that it's like hived off from yes you know, everything else that's happening and, and the fact that they can't make those connections or see the the fact that there is, I mean, I don't know what your analysis of the how we came to this moment is, Jules. My sense of it is there had been this faction within the Reagan revolution that had been really instrumental to it happening, but had always felt that it, uh, the Christian right, had always felt that it really kind of lost out. Mm -hmm. The Reagan revolution ultimately was one on their backs but that that really it had been like the the libertarians that won uh, most of the policy gains from that. They've been sort of biding their time, trying things out. But really, it took two things. One, it took having a monopoly over state governments for a very long time, which is what they have. And and second, it took having a Supreme Court that is now going to be durably dominated by conservatives for the next political generation. And now it's like that's every, that is all locked in. And so that's why it's, it seems to me that all of those pieces are falling into place kind of in the states. Uh, but Democrats somehow have not like, uh, you know, arisen to that like reality. Yeah, I think that's broadly right. And, you know, part of what I was sort of struggling to figure out how to say this past week with the news in Texas was like, I'm sort of exhausted on a meta level by people being shocked by things yeah, like, right. oh, this time they've gone too far. And it's like, bitch, no, they've been going too far for a long time. And there's a logic here, right? It's not a coincidence that, you know, this child abuse policy was something that, you know, I wrote about a year ago in this bill that passed the right. Texas Senate, but did not pass the Texas House probably only because there were already other anti-trans bills in the Texas House at the time. Um, but, you know, there's a logic here, right? It's like if you are holding, you know, super majorities or strong majorities in, um, in a plurality of state legislatures for a long time, you can effectively turn them into uh, political laboratories where you're testing out different kinds of legal and statutory logics to advance your goals. But, you know, it's like, 
you know, if, if, if people are taught in sort of, you know, civics 101, well, the United States has three branches of government and a split between <laughs> federal and state. And it's like, yes. And so the right wing, the extreme right wing movement has been banking for a long time on this kind of long horizonal game where you need to get access to and install a kind of political dominance in each of those branches because they will work in unison, right? And we've seen this evolution, right? You know, there are all of these sorts of like, don't say gay bills and anti, mm-hmm. um, you know, LGBT history, anti-race and racism history bills all over you know, in several states, conservative states right now, and those bills are also showing evolutions in legal logic. So now they're not trying to just ban discussion of gay people, they're claiming to ban all discussion of all gender and sexuality so that in theory they could be, you know, no longer be struck down by, you know, anti-discrimination statutes. And then when you're Mm -hmm. stacking the judiciary, right, like these things are all meant to work together. And there is a kind of cyclical, I think, um, like the lo- the vicious logic of 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 cycles here where year after year and i think texas is our perfect example year after year these trans kids and their families have literally spent their entire childhoods traveling to the state capitol to beg the same lawmakers year after year for their basic human rights, but they've also been watching the legal strategy employed by those lawmakers evolve over time to continue to outwit them, right? And, you know, benefiting from all sorts of, you know, funding and organization from conservative um, conservative political groups. But it's like, this has been happening, right? And, and so it's, I, I really think part of the challenge is to ask people to see things as that systemic, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know, I'm not a political commentator, so I don't know what it is that, you know, makes Democrats too afraid to be that, like, systemic. But I think it's a broader problem in in American political culture and the sort of, like, the, the mainstreaming of LGBT rights where people think it's just a cultural issue or they think it's, you know, as long as you treat the people who you meet in your life who are gay, lesbian, and trans nicely and, like, watch the Netflix series that has a trans actor, like you're a good person and you go to, you go to pride in your local city every summer and have fun going to a drag bar. And so you're like, you're doing your part and it's like, yeah, okay, well that's exactly the kind of split between cultural and material politics that benefits (laughs) this like, you know, (laughs) revanchist extremist neoliberal project. And so, you know, I think there's, there's a real moment here for me that's about, how much unlearning people need to do to to see what is really going on. And actually, you know, I, I don't know. I've been trying to think about what it would take for us to face the horror of the moment, right? And, right. and to face it in a way that's not about them kind of shirking away from it in fear, but to actually acknowledge um, that we are part of, you know, this broader cultural and political system that is deliberately targeting entire populations for eradication in order to immiserate everyone except a very small, you know, right. um, favored ruling class. Like, you know, th- that's a difficult maneuver. But I, but I really, you know, increasingly feel like part of the experience that those of us who have been, you know, writing about and talking about these issues for years, and I don't know if you all feel this way too, is that like there's a kind of you know, sort of like, I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, to some extent losing my sanity because I can't 
continue to like spend my emotional bandwidth, like coddling other people who are like, wow, I just can't believe this. No, this can't really be happening. And so, you know, (laughs) one of the things that really bothers me about how people reacted to the announcement in Texas was all this emphasis on, oh, don't worry, it's not legally binding. Right. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what about the last, you know, uh, 300 years of the United States makes you think that whether something is legally binding or not is a very useful measure of how dangerous it is. Like, sure, it's not legally binding. But as you said at the top of the show, that in some ways makes it much more dangerous than the version (laughs) we got last year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these things are dangerous because it is, as you're saying, so easy to dismiss it and say, oh, well, this is not like an actual law, right? It also, I think, gives people fewer ideas about even how to think about how they as an individual can resist it, right? Because then it becomes at this sort of like meta level of just, oh, well, it's commentary, but it's it's not, you know, it's it's a legal opinion. Letters like this help solidify consensus. They give other people ideas about how to make the same arguments. You know, inspiration and language can be wholesale copied into other laws, right? Well, also just to be really explicit too, uh, towards the beginning, because I'm sure we'll get into the specifics of this later, but it could be dismissed as, oh, this isn't a law. They didn't pass something. It's just an opinion or whatever. But it is, you know, the governor and the attorney general of the state saying, not not just saying like, oh, in my opinion, like we should, I don't know, have child protective services like round up trans kids. It's saying like, legally, this is already the case. The argument is right. that it's already the law, actually, right. which yes. is Even kind of something the, I think that a lot of the commentary misses. Right. And then this can be cited, too. Right. And it has this obvious chilling effect way beyond the text itself. Well, the other thing is, like, there was Paxton's letter uh, which was like the legal opinion. But then there was Abbott's directive based on the letter, Mm -hmm. which said to the, I forget which department, but basically said, by the way, this is now what I am instructing you to do Mm -hmm. based on this letter. So, I mean, I agree. It is obviously legally preposterous. Like this is this, you know, doesn't hold any water at all. But when you are the head of an agency and the governor sends you a letter that says you shall do this, um, even if it's legally preposterous, you have to begin taking some action right. that corresponds to. Now, you might. There are strategies for dealing with it. You could slow walk it. Uh, you could uh, make it like, you know, just really difficult to like churn out. Like if you really think it's illegal or you really think it's immoral, like you have options and there are ways for you to resist. But make no mistake that like. And in the end, the courts might strike it down anyway. But make no mistake, like you have to take some actions, especially if you're under a lot of scrutiny to do them to conform with it. And that's why it's like, I, you know, it's like, OK, for lawyers who think about things, you know, just as if like everything ends up in litigation, you know, you could look at this and say, eh, you know, this is just, uh, you know, this is just sort of like symbolic politics. Mm-hmm. But that really doesn't reflect how government works. Um, and it also doesn't reflect the the fact that when these, yeah, as you're saying, when these things are articulated, it then creates a climate of fear where even if, you know, you've got the leading um, medical you know associations, the American Academy of Pediatrics saying like this, we, you know, we don't endorse this, you know, you don't have to abide by this or whatever, or they're suing on a provider level, people are, there's still going to be fear. It's still good. I mean, I don't see how this doesn't create a chilling effect 
even in the absence of like force of law. Yeah, and we already know that. Like before this right. happened, there's already one central uh, clinic in the state of Texas that was providing gender affirming care to young people before this policy came about has already closed its doors due to a relentless and vicious harassment campaign yeah. from yeah. groups right. that were basically like, hey, we're getting the green light from state politicians, so we're not going to wait for them to ban this under the law. We will just attack and harass healthcare providers until they shut down the clinic because guess what that worked on already? Abortion clinics, right? Right. And guess, and so it worked. And so there's, you know, this new order in theory, right, is a sort of backdoor way to also stop, you know, all healthcare providers from providing gender-affirming care. But even before this order came about, we already had one of the biggest clinics in the state closing. And so it's like, I don't know what more evidence we need, right? And, and I think there's something, you know, again, kind of challenging here, right? Um, because it's asking us, you know, broadly as, as a public and a culture to push past, you know, our idea of the sort of perversion of good ideas. Because, you know, as often happens when one of these things hits the news, you know, I get a bunch of emails from journalists at sort of big publications saying like, do you have anything to say? Like, do you want to write something, whatever? And, and in my back and forth with some of them, you know, I started to realize that one of the ways that people seem to be understanding this issue as egregious was that it's a terrible perversion of the concept of child abuse and mandatory <laughs> reporting, right? What? And I was like, well, on its face, <laughs> sure, because like, you know, one way maybe to critique this policy is, right, is that the state, which I have said myself, is that the state of Texas would like to mandate the collective abuse of trans children um, in the right. name of protecting them from child abuse. And that is sort of on its face, rhetorically, logically, to me, perverse. But it's not a radical break from the history of the notion of child abuse, and it's not a radical break from the, the history of the concept of child welfare. And this, you know, I really appreciate um, Melissa Gira Grant's reporting on this because the way that she sets up this case right, for the idea that the state of Texas is working towards being able to remove mm. trans children from their families, right? That's not really a perverse twist on the history of child removal in this country. I mean, you know, the entire institution of child welfare, as it was invented in the late 19th century, has always been about policing uh, undesirable populations, politically subversive populations, it's always been a tool of racialized governance, anti-Black governance. Absolutely. That's the history of foster care. That's the history mm -hmm. of adoption. That's the history of child protective services. And the very history of child welfare has been utilized also for purposes of cultural genocide against Indigenous peoples. It's been used in, in ways to forcibly assimilate white immigrant children, the abduction of children and their you know placement on so-called orphan trains in the 19th century. I mean, I really just don't see this as like some fundamental betrayal, as if the mandated reporting system in the state of Texas, as if child protective services, as if the foster care system <laughs> in Texas or anywhere in America mm. was serving <laughs> marginalized and minoritized kids. No, these are weaponized state institutions of policing, surveillance, and eradication. They are designed to bring about and exacerbate pressure points that will reduce 
the kinship structures dismantle families and weaken the the overall resilience and life chances of of entire populations of people. And so it's alarming to me to see trans children explicitly added to that, right? And it does create a host of really violent scenarios, right, that people have been talking about, you know, trans activists and journalists have been pointing out, right? Like, what if you're a parent, you know, with a trans kid and, you know, they're playing on the playground and break their arm and you want to take them to the emergency room, but you're afraid to do it because the nurse might be required to report you to the right. state and have you investigated. Right. And so like, sure, it does. It, these are really severe, you know, weaponizations. And I, I don't doubt that most mandated reporters in the state of Texas probably, or at least a lot of them obviously don't want to be forced against their will to investigate trans kids but they don't mind reporting on all kinds of other kids historically. And those kids are mostly black and brown and disabled and immigrants kids. So, you know, it's like part of part of what I think is so troubling here once again, right, is that for those of us who are trying to mobilize against these really vicious policies, right, there are those of us who are like, and by the way, we didn't even like the status quo to begin with. That's right. part of why we're so incensed. And then there's this whole other kind of like, you know, column of people who are like, I really want to go back to that rosy situation in Texas before where Child Protective Services only targeted Black and, and Latinx right. kids and disabled kids. I think that this illustrates really well a huge part of the danger here because they are, what is I think happening in this Texas situation is that they are accurately identifying an existing apparatus of the state to police norms and then exactly. just much much Expanding like the very existence of trans children liberals then look at that and say like oh look at this novel thing or whatever i think right. actually the not to not to circle back too far to the you know what why why are liberals doing basically nothing about this or not really talking or it's like why is shock and outrage simply seen as enough of a reaction right exactly you know? right. um i think that part of it is in some ways you have a lot of existing previously held misconceptions about things like child protective services that oh like it it's serving a bad function is somehow novel in the in the united states and in society and similarly you have so much of these arguments in in itself and i think some of the sort of liberal deference about it rests on the idea that uh the existence of trans people and trans children is in fact novel right i mean exactly i want to actually quote from your your book histories of the change of the transgender child here um I mean, you, you talk about this a lot throughout your book, but you phrase this particularly well at the beginning of the conclusion to your book, which is called How to Bring Your Kids Up Trans. Um, you write, quote, the 21st century figuration of the trans child as futuristic does harm when its novelty erases the historical precedence to the demands for recognition, dignity, and a livable life that are being made by and on behalf of trans children today. And I think that, you know, says so much about these sort of structures that are just sort of willfully ignored or the existence of people that are just completely erased from the archive. It's it's true. And, and I think that it's so important, right? Because I think part of what has happened, right? You know, I think the reason why, I mean, it's complicated. Why, why are anti-trans politics so popular, right? And actually the answer to that is not a uniquely American one. There is a global authoritarian mm-hmm. Uh, you know, movement that is, you know, spans the right and the left, right? In Europe, Western Europe and the UK, it's mostly feminists and, you know, people on the left who are so viciously anti-trans, they're authoritarian, 
leftists. Um, but there is a sort of global, you know, who's who of strongmen politics, anti-democracy groups, uh, xenophobic, often anti-migrant, and a populist groups that are all cashing in on the idea of, of, you know, gender ideology and whatnot. So, you know, the answer isn't uniquely American, but, you know, some of it just has to do with the fact that I think one way it's easy to scapegoat a population is if they are just culturally becoming visible in a particular mode, right? And so, of course, for most people who don't have trans people in their lives that they know of, the last 10 years is the first time that they're being introduced to the idea that they share the world with trans people, especially trans young people, right? And so I think that creates a very convenient rationale for uh, for legislative attack, right? It's the idea, this is experimental. We have to save children from, you know, this horrible, you know, and it, it just descends from there all the way to like, you know, kids these days spend too much time online and now they're transgender, right? And I mean, we're seeing all this (laughs) absolute, the hilarious rhetoric of people who are like, basically, you know, openly siding with Vladimir Putin and and the the Russian invasion of the Ukraine because they're like, see, we shouldn't have cared about pronouns. And it's like, honey, you're just, just came out as supporting a fascist invasion okay um but you know (laughs) but but there's something there's something really important about being able to to pivot against that and not just say hey that's a lie it's a lie and it's a libel is what i call it in my book and i don't think that's overstating it because it's not true that trans kids are new but but then there's this added step that i've i've really want people to think more about which is these kinds of policies however right It's true. They have not actually been used on trans people before, right? So trans kids in the past, not like they were living their best lives, but they actually weren't targeted by these kinds of explicit policies. I mean, in my book, I actually do have some, you know, I didn't write about this at length, but I've gone back, unfortunately, to my archival notes every time one of these policies has come about to see if anything like that has precedent, right? And of course, trans children, particularly trans kids of color, trans girls and poor trans kids were caught up in carceral systems, you know, for most of the 20th century and were very much likely to find themselves in foster care, juvenile detention, and actually, yes, be investigated um, by the state for various reasons. But the pretense was never being trans. Usually it was just more vague ideas of juvenile delinquency and just deviance. like deviance, racism. Or anti-social and it, behavior. Exactly. Yeah. And so one of the things we have to understand, too, is like one reason it's important that trans kids have a history is that it means that there is no justification for these kinds of legal interventions. It means that all of us will be made to suffer, right? Because you can't implement these policies very well um, without policing everyone's gender. And so it's like, okay, so you're accepting this fabrication that trans people and trans kids are new. And on that basis, you're going to give up a certain degree of, of autonomy in conducting your own life in order to allow the state to institute new forms of surveillance and policing that, by the way, you are going to be compelled to enact yourself, right? The, 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 right. the governor's letter imagines that it would force not just mandated reporters, but the general public is the actual phrase in the letter. The general public will be encouraged, if not required, to inform 
on its neighbors. Mm -hmm. Your job will be every time you go to the store, every time you go to school, every time you go to your workplace to constantly be on the lookout for trans kids. And if you find them and if you see them, and even if you're not looking for them and you encounter them, you are supposed to pick up the phone and report on them. This is not the way, uh, you know, gender was organized vis-a-vis state power (laughs) for the last hundred years. That actually is new, right? But if we connect it to this older history where, hey, guess who Americans have long been happy to pick up the phone and inform on, right? Uh, Communists and, you know, African-Americans and poor people and immigrants, right? Well, if that's already been the case, then what that helps us understand is, oh, right, on the one hand, there is no, you know, new reasoning for these kinds of policies to be implemented so we could say no to them on that basis, right? But also, we can see why they are so easy to be implemented and we should be even more concerned because this has long been a kind of backbone of U.S. state power. It just hasn't, you know, operated in this particular you know, kind of idiom until now. So I think there is a complicated kind of double step here, but I hope like seeing it that way helps people feel sort of like the most robustly grounded when they Mm -hmm. say no and kind of mobilize and organize against these policies. That's a, that's a, I'm really, really happy that you put it that way because I I think that there is, I mean, you know, regardless of what we learn about, you know, the history of the American state, uh, you know, whether, you know, whether or not the, the convention is to say, oh, OK, actually, like, you know, at least a third of the country was an apartheid state until like 1965, at least. Yeah. And, you know, whatever, whatever they like the convention among historiography is, there's still a, I think, public, the, the, the grand kind of public understanding of the American political tradition is of the American political tradition is like as a fundamentally liberal one. Right. You know, it's like the, the, that sort of 1950s view of American political history, even though it hasn't like won out in the pages of academic journals, like I think it still sort of wins out in the public mind. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, and, and even when you like there, you know, people who study state constitutions, they're like, look at all these cool, positive rights that exist in state constitutions. And, you know, OK, isn't America sort of fundamentally uh, liberal uh, in that way. And it's like, well, okay, that's fine. As long as you ignore all of the really important and yet subtle ways that you're never going to code by like looking at the, the fundamental like doctrines of, of state law, but you're going to, it's like, okay, the states have police powers. Do you expect them not to use that uh, in, in these sort of very investigatory ways? So on the one hand, there's this, the reason why, Paxton can say something like this or Abbott can direct uh, his agency, whether or not it has explicitly like the legal force to do that. But the reason why it even seems remotely plausible is that that is a central competence, uh, if you want to put it that way, of state governments. And it always has been Yeah. Um, the, the moral um, sort of enforcers, as it were, um, and local governments, too. But then. There's another thing that I think is implicit in what you're saying, which is, okay, well, now here are states experimenting with an even more forceful way of using that power. And the, the question is, okay, Texas does this. Okay, it's not, uh, maybe it's not even with the force of law right now. But then the question is like, okay, uh, the, the, you don't do this and not learn from it. Uh, you don't do this and not learn how to, I don't know, better investigate 
uh, and expand your the sweep of of what you do uh, in terms of in, investigating policing, all manner of things. I mean, that's the thing I think the the people who are constantly surprised is like, okay, well, even at one basic remove, you could have seen this coming with the sports bills uh, that were you know far easier to pass for for states like Texas. But okay, you weren't paying attention. But like what, you know, trace out, like, where do you see this? Like, what, what do you think the, the logical sort of like end point is with all of this? Because I think that that's what people are, are missing. I mean, you, you've said it in other ways that this is states being encouraged to use their power to essentially commit, you know, an atrocity uh, against trans kids. But like it, it's that's that's not the end of the, the line even. Right. It's not. But I, I think part of what I want to say is that. Like <laughs> we already crossed the like the line has been crossed. We're already yeah. there. We're already yeah. in. We're already in the end point because there is no end point. I think it's you know, and and that's a way of agreeing with what you're saying. I think that's right. It's it's you know sort of part of a broader kind of deprogramming of of the education in political liberalism to understand that like liberalism's project is violence. The state doesn't protect anyone. The state monopolizes and consolidates its own power and it rationalizes the apportionment of life and death and that's fundamentally what the u.s state does and it protects the interests of capital and so it's already been doing that right it's reinventing itself to adapt um to different you know prevailing economic or political circumstances right but i don't actually think like, you know, there are narrow versions of this. I've said the state is working to declare itself cisgender, which is to say that declare it that to be official, you know, requirement for participation in public life that everyone align, you know, their gender presentation, how they're perceived with the fantasy of what their anatomy is. And that mm-hmm. has never been state policy, but it's not a radical reinvention of state power because the state has declared an official sexuality in the past, right? In in the 90s, it was no promo homo. The state was, you know, officially heterosexual in many states and at the federal level. The state has declared, right, at different times, official racial uh, qualifications for citizenship and voting and office holding. The state has had an official gender for a long time. It was, you know, a racialized gender. It was white property owning men. So, I mean, it's not a fundamental break for me. And I think part of the challenge then is sort of understanding, right, is that like maybe what is the state doing, right? How is state power operating? And I think with the case of Texas, right, part of what it's doing, it is it is actually acting out, and I don't actually, like, what I'm about to say is not a metaphor and not an analogy. I think it's actually, I say this as, like, you know, a survivor of abuse and someone who, like, you know, is, is active in, you know, survivor circles and, and interested in survivor activism. The state, right, in, in, in weaponizing child abuse, I actually think is acting out the logic of the abuser. And what I mean by that is the state is compelling us to be complicit. It is compelling us to harm trans children every single day. And that is not a radical break from what we were already doing collectively, because as I have said a thousand times, you know, in many different um, contexts, I think we we don't deserve the trans kids in our lives. And we have been largely responsible for their infantilization, mystification and punishment. And that goes even for those of us, you know, who are ostensibly on the trans affirmative, but sort of mainstream um, side of that uh, project. 
But I really think that what is happening is not so much a fundamental like move towards something in particular, but a radical kind of intensification of a logic of harm. And so I think really we're all being asked to participate in the open abuse of trans children in a way that is maybe more with more teeth than before. But if anything, for me, what that calls us to do is face down the fact that that is what we have been doing. Now we're just not going to be given any choice about it if Texas gets its way. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's this idea of sort of the pressure for consent from like the average individual is really important that you bring up because, you know, this is a total war and the aim ultimately is to create the blanket cultural imaginary that trans life should be eliminated, prevented or excluded in the Mm -hmm. United States. That's, you know, and in terms of like a project, right, these are sort of like not even just political projects. These are assertions of personhood and social roles within society, too, you know, and it's ultimately sort of this tremendous ahistorical negation both of like trans life but also it's been recently this sort of weaponization also as as you and i have talked about jules of like the disability identity that's being used against trans people because one of the things that we saw in this texas letter that's so troubling right is kind of you know this idea that you just brought up of um you know we don't deserve trans children who you know we are all responsible for infantilizing them and the sort of reproduction of the idea that they mm-hmm. can't know themselves and can't consent and this is also you know really formalized in this ag letter which talks about their lack of consent under these sort of frameworks of mental incompetence madness putting their parents even under these frameworks and so you really see some of the other apparatuses that we've used for a long time to remove designations of personhood, remove designations and qualifications for social rights and social life, whether that's economic participation, voting rights, your actual liberty, whether you're you know committed to an institution or incarcerated, right? These are kind of existing frames from the state right now is trying to essentially compel consent to expand these you know, weaponized state institutional processes against a type of personhood that it wants to incorporate under these sort of like frames that it's sort of asserting as if they are natural and true, but they are these sort of complete fabrications of conservative imagination. Yes. I mean, thank you for saying that. I think this is the crux of the issue for me. And and so it's one of the reasons I'm so excited to be talking with you all today. And And I really think I'm really... Right, because there's this broader context we've been talking about. Look at all these machinations and political projects and, you know, changes in state power and forms of it. Yes, all of that is true. But when it comes right down to it, you know, my bone to pick is that is not like those. That's not the stratum that moves me to care, right? The stratum right. that moves me to care is much more immediate. I I don't want to live in a world that declares entire populations of people incompetent, undesirable, and subject to dispossession Mm -hmm. for virtue of existing. To me, that is an evidence of a sort of, you know, collective delusion about reality and a flight from reality and a refusal to understand the collective responsibility for harm that we all bear in upholding a world that creates these cleavages in mm-hmm. which, you know, the purpose of this of society is to police itself, is to wage an internal war upon itself, to cleanse itself of those deemed inadequate and undesirable. That is the fundamental root at which I find it so repugnant because 
there's nothing wrong with and there's nothing, you know, um, undesirable about being trans in the same way that there is nothing wrong with or undesirable about being disabled or about being sick or about being unable to, you know, work yourself to death for minimum wage in this country. And I think that there's something so important um, at what you're getting at there, right? That there's this way in which, you know, the that that letter, right, and that legal opinion are really trying to frame trans children as incompetent, right, and lacking the ability to consent, lacking the ability to understand themselves, right? And of course, that's to cast them as you know, undesirable victims whose, you know, whose wants and needs can be brushed aside. But it's a really extreme pathologization and intensification of ableist, right, and, you know, anti-disability um, language that rarely gets challenged in a substantial way, right? And the idea that, you know, for the good of society, right, we have to cordon off entire groups of people, demonize, scapegoat them, and then subject them to essentially organized, planned immiseration, if not eradication. Like, that is the root problem for me. I don't, there's no circumstance under which I think that's okay, right? And so it's wrong when it happens to trans kids, but it's wrong when it happens to anyone. Uh, and, And this is, I think, sort of the broader kind of place where, again, an alliance between you know, pro-trans politics and, and and disability politics is really helpful in kind of clarifying the stakes here. This is this is eugenic policymaking. It is the state deciding what types of people, what sorts of kinds of life are acceptable and uh, which ones should be promoted. And the promotion of certain types of life and conditions of life must come directly at the subtraction of other forms of human life from the social body, right? So much of eugenic, uh, the logic of eugenics is subtractive. We mm-hmm. must cleanse, right? We must um, eliminate unhealthy, pollutive bodies from the social, from the nation. And this is, you know, a really disturbing new chapter in this very long history that is unfinished. Right. I mean, right. my God, the United States is just like the most, you, you know, we, 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 we could easily vie, you know, in the sweepstakes for most eugenic um, nation. And it's, it's really disturbing to me precisely because, you know, the ability to say, well, you know, in one way, right, by demonizing trans people under this eugenic rubric, you're also reinforcing that eugenic rubric. And exactly. so once again, it's like, even if we were to beat back this latest attack, right, on trans people alone, that's doing very little to move the needle overall. And I'm just really, I think like, you know, I, I, I'm very careful about like sort of moralizing discourse and whatnot, because that's so often the form of what is directed against us. But if like, we want to just like, you know, I don't know, there are days where, you know, I, I, I close my Twitter app in a rage and think like there are, you know, there's some people I would like to simply say to them, not do all of this fancy political analysis or all of this complex analytical work that I'm trained to do and simply say, hi, you're a bad person. (laughs) <laughs> and the work that you're doing in the world it, it qualifies by my definition of evil because you fundamentally disrespect and seek harm and seek to bring death upon entire populations of people because you judge yourself superior to them and think that your security is dependent on their uh, immiseration 
exploitation and wholesale eradication. And I simply have nothing else to say about that other than like, (laughs) that's abhorrent. It's disgusting. It's wrong. And we have so much overwhelming evidence as to the outcomes of that kind of, you know, thinking and logic. I just, you know, in some ways, it's also this sort of feeling of like, I don't know what more we need to say, right? We, We clearly have lost so much political and rhetorical ground that we even have to work hard to make these basic points, right? How naturalized is, is eugenics in this country? How naturalized is, you know, the, the organized mass letting die of entire populations? And of course, we don't even have to say this because this country has just let one million people die yeah. of COVID-19. I mean, we are just living through and, and you know, and just to, to tie this, because I think these things are tied. This is very much tied to these outrageous, fallacious CDC guidelines that are saying, once again, we would simply, simply rather, this is an active desire and election on the part of the state that is being supported by so many people in the cultural talking, chattering class, right? That it is preferable to let people who are ill, people who are immunocompromised, people with disabilities, it is preferable to expose them to death than to take care of them. That's the fundamental choice because taking care of them would in some way be inconvenient or require resources or in any case would require us to admit that we have been actively placing them in harm's way for a very, very long time. And so I really see these things as deeply, deeply intertwined. And I just think like, ah, I mean, you can hear it in my voice. Like this is the place where I just get so fucking angry because <laughs> yeah. uh, there's there's no more basic level of, of just absolute disregard for other people. And for, for, you know, for like, it's not a human rights framework. It's just like a base, like, I'm sorry. I actually personally, my like the core or bedrock of my moral value system is like, I'm not trying to work towards a world that actively plans to kill and let whole populations of people die in order to secure yeah. my life. That's like fundamentally not what I'm about in the world. And I think really we have to admit that so much of what we're compelled to be a part of every day is about that. And Absolutely. this is just another entry in it. So speaking of bad people, I want to make sure that we don't. <laughs> miss the opportunity to get some of this explicit language in here that is coming from the Texas AG's letter. Um, I want to because we've been talking for a little bit about some of these frameworks about what is constituted as sort of the boundaries of both, for instance, like a trans child's autonomy, or even a uh, parent of a trans child's autonomy and making decisions about whether to support them or not, basically, um, what you call Jules in your piece uh, for your Substack, we the abuser state, um, what you call the fantasy quote the fantasy that children are quasi property, not mm. people. Um, so you know, fair warning. Of, you know, obviously, the language in this Texas AG letter really sucks. But we're you know we're talking about this. But I this is a part of the letter that I didn't really see much if any pushback on or mm. a lot of sort of let's say like analytical interest in um, I think this is some something where there's a lot going on here so I just want to read this component of it which I think gets to this overlap that we're all talking about here of where they essentially relate the rights and the limits of autonomy of again trans children and parents of trans children 
they relate the limits of autonomy to basically the limits of autonomy that are just sort of culturally understood as supposed to be acceptable, the, the acceptable limits that we confine disabled people uh, and mad people into, essentially. So um, let me just read this really quick. Again, this is from the Texas AG's letter. Quote, regarding parental consent, Texas law generally recognizes a parent's right to consent to a child's medical care. But this general right to consent to certain medically necessary procedures does not extend to elective, in parentheses, not medically necessary procedures and treatments that infringe upon a child's constitutional right to procreate. There's this whole thing in the letter about how all forms of transition or sterilization, which is just like, yeah, I mean, it's fucking hilarious to me when people are like, this isn't eugenics. It's like literally about reproduction. Come on. Quote, indeed, (laughs) courts have analyzed the imposition of unnecessary medical procedures upon children, (laughs) unnecessary medical procedures upon children in similar circumstances in the past to determine whether doing so constitutes child abuse. One such situation that the law has addressed is often referred to as a Munchausen by proxy or factitious disorder imposed on another. They then helpfully give a definition of Munchausen by proxy, quote, a psychological disorder that is characterized by the intentional feigning, exaggeration or induction of the symptoms of a disease or injury in oneself or another, and that is accompanied by the seeking of excessive medical care from various doctors and medical facilities, typically resulting in multiple diagnostic tests, treatments, procedures, and, and hospitalizations, which is an overutilization argument. Mm-hmm. Unlike the malingerer, who consciously <laughs> oh. induces symptoms to obtain something of value, the patient with a factitious disorder consciously produces symptoms for unconscious reasons without identifiable gain. In such situations as this, an individual intentionally seeks to procure, often by deceptive means, such as exaggeration, unnecessary medical procedures or treatments either for themselves or others, usually their children. In Texas, courts have found that these Munchausen by proxy situations can constitute child abuse. Mm-hmm. So that's so quite that's dense. the legal metaphor. The right, legal the, metaphor for the, is uh, madness. Yeah, is is madness. Is madness. Yeah. And disability. Just check well, yeah. And this is this is Munchausen because specifically. Because of course, madness because of course, you know, everyone's cool with the idea that mad people and disabled people have no rights and that you can strip their autonomy from them. So like all we're saying is trans people or trans or the the parents of trans people are mad. I mean, you right? want to talk about a population that the state has pretty expansive powers over personhood, mm-hmm. body autonomy, spatial location you know ability to consent you know the state can determine that someone who is deemed not mentally competent the state can determine consent for them and there are Uh so many of these expansive legal structures which exist under this framework of the state managing madness for the safety of the sort of non-mad the rational sane population Right. And so, I I mean, this is what I think really worries me about seeing these connections made here, particularly to a diagnostic category as specious as fucking Munchausen's, which, Uh by the way, is not called Munchausen's anymore. It's called fabricated or induced illness. But either way, this entire category of illness, right, which really starts to be first described in the 1950s, is so... I mean, I, it's like I can't even I can't even describe to you like how fucked up this is to apply this framework to trans life, because this has always been this kind of contested category. It used to be considered 
under the umbrella of, you know, the sort of psychopath diagnosis, right? And so what it was used to describe initially was when you had a patient that just kept coming and you couldn't really figure out what was wrong, there was nothing diagnostically presenting, and that is sort of what establishes you this category, it right? You could therefore crazy. Right. And, 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 and what that's transformed into, the sort of seeking of diagnosis is transformed into this pathological and um, inability to even realize that this process is happening almost, right? It's a kind of complete removal from society with a completely, you know, different perspective. And this is the kind of judgment that, you know, has changed with every single uh, iteration of our diagnostic categories, right? It's one of the kind of things that exists more as a cultural meme than it does an actual, you know, theory of practice, right? There, and so the way that they are sort of like weaponizing this framework of the state as a mediator between the sort of aggressive, violent, crazy um, trans people under this framework of the state being a necessary mediator for madness is just absolutely, um, you know, something that needs to be pushed back on well, I, strongly. I think it's similar to the Child Protective Services absolutely, thing. It's like, yeah. you accept this, right? Well, we're saying they're mad now. So. Yes. Right. Yes. I mean, thank you for for zeroing in on this because, you know, as much as we might say as I am often wont to do as someone who has to like work really hard to do research, show receipts and craft good arguments for a living. I'm like, okay, whatever bureaucrats are in charge of these policies and whoever their architects are, not sending sort of the most rigorous opponents I could imagine, right? These are <laughs> not, not sending good, their best. Yeah. Not sending their best, but that's actually the point. I right? guess that's because, how power works, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you yeah. don't have, I mean, the real, real power means you don't actually have to make any goddamn sense. No, and we know this because like you just said, I have seen zero people pick up on this, what I really consider to be, along with you all, the smoking gun of this policy and this provision. This is really where we get into it, right? Yeah. And I think it actually, if folks who are listening are sort of like, I can't believe, you know, it's like, can't, can't believe it's not butter. Can't believe it's not Munchausen's, right? Like this is, <laughs> this is actually where I think it becomes crystal clear how we need to understand our political response to match mm. what is at stake. And this is where trans and disability politics need to be in lockstep, right? Because it's easy. It's easy to come to this and just say like, well, this is a house of cards. Trans people are not mad. Okay. There is a long history of pathologizing trans people as mentally ill, mm -hmm. yep. but the powers that be in the medical arena who are extremely conservative and invented that uh, contention in the first place, not because they had any empirical reason to think trans people were mad, but merely because they didn't understand how to classify trans people and trans people caused a terminological crisis in the profession. Okay, that's the history mm -hmm. of where we get this ridiculous mm -hmm. contention, right? The only reason trans being trans was ever considered a mental illness has nothing to do with medical reasoning, right? Historians have looked into this, right? And for, so for the benefit of everyone listening, right, the short version is when you're looking at, you know, the mid 20th century and even a little bit earlier and doctors are encountering trans people and they're like, okay, so you want to change your sex? And they're like, well, I mean, I kind of know how to do that. So like, 
doesn't really seem to be anything wrong with you physically. Um, <laughs> okay, but like, I don't think my colleagues are going to let me do this surgery. So, oh, I know. I'm just going to send you to a psychiatrist because if a psychiatrist signs off on it, at least I can be like, hey, dotted my eyes, crossed my T's, and literally, okay, the doctors in this era were like, you know, also like, what if I'm not very good <laughs> at this surgery and my patients get pissed, right? And so they're like, oh, well, a great way, you know, to prevent being sued, right, would be um, to basically use psychiatry and use um, mental illness diagnoses to like narrow the pool of eligibility. So I'm only operating on the tiniest amount of people who I think will be the most cooperative and docile, right? So that's where we get this mental illness import um, for trans people, like many other uh, origins of a concept of mental illness, it has nothing to do with anything other than a prevailing social situation on the part of the people who will hold all the power, right? Um, and so, okay, great. Now it's 2022. And actually, according to the DSM, according to the ICD, according to every major medical association, to be trans is not in and of itself a mental illness. Yay. Okay, great. I don't mean to under I don't mean to underplay the importance of that as right. someone who accesses, you know, gender affirming care every day myself. But like to think that that is our get out of jail free card here is really, really, really specious and really dangerous because it participates in a long history of selling out disabled people and selling out people with mental illness in order to secure the sanctity of a different population. And this has right. already happened to trans people, right? I want to mm -hmm. shout out a wonderful trans studies scholar, Jake Pine, who's a dear friend of mine who is writing about the, the history of, um, you know, behavioral control therapy and, and, and conversion therapy in relation to children with autism in relation to the history of anti-LGBT conversion therapy. And he tells this wonderful story in his work about how in the 1970s, of course, famously, homosexuality is demedicalized. It's, it's after pressure by activists. It's no longer considered a mental illness. But one of the ways that those gay liberation activists pulled that off was they were like, you know who's actually sick? Trans people. And so right after mm. homosexuality is pulled out of the DSM in 1973, in the very next version of the DSM in 1980, it's the first time transsexualism or gender identity disorder in children is included, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's a, it's literally like a one out one in system, right? Um, and so you take gay people out, you put trans people in, right? And then, you know, Jake has looked at how the, the University of California, Los Angeles, which is one of the main places where there was this gender clinic that really developed a lot of conversion therapy and, and just sort of reparative therapy that was used against both effeminate boys and trans girls. This is one of the clinics I write about in my book. Those clinicians are literally sharing office space and buildings with the inventors of you know, the, the behavioral modification therapy <laughs> well, that's used oh against God. children with autism. Right. Like yeah. it's not a, it's not a coincidence. They have lunch together. They are, they are sharing best practices. And so, you know, one of the points that Jake's work tries to make is that like, if trans people are going to, if, if trans politics rather are going to be wagered on the depathologization or D, you know, that the removal, the subtraction of the idea of madness or mental illness from trans people, it's going to sell out among other people, 
uh, especially kids with autism, right? We're actually seeing a lot of states expanding <laughs> Medicaid uh, coverage to cover these kinds of radical anti-autistic therapies that are mm-hmm. often focused on children, right? And so to, to, to loop that all back here, right, we could respond to this outrageous Munchausen's analogy and say, this is outrageous because it's not true. Trans people aren't, um, aren't ill. They're not mad. But if we just do that, then we're still saying, well, but, you know, it's bad because there really are mad people who do need to be regulated by the state, right? right? Exactly. And there, there really are people with disabilities, but, but trans people don't have disabilities. And it's like, well, first of all, some trans people are also people with disabilities. And as many, 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 many trans people have written about, it's really hard to access mental health care when you're trans because you're constantly afraid that a diagnosis of comorbidity can be used against you, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I've had this happen to me too, where clinicians are like, well, I don't know, you seem pretty depressed. I- I'm not sure if you should, have you tried not transitioning or, or maybe we should slow things down and it's like, literally, I'm fucking depressed because of transphobia, but thank you. Um, but like, <laughs> right. you know, but then, but sometimes like trans people also have other Mental illnesses, like that's just a fact of life. It's benign um, as um, as a moral matter. But if we if we wager our trans politics in this moment on continuing to to pathologize people with mental illness or pathologize mad folks or endorse that there really are, there really is some sort of Munchausen's going on in the world. It's just just not with trans people. Then we've we've failed. We yeah. failed. We failed trans politics too because we have refuse to resolve the original vulnerability that led to this whole situation, right? It Mm -hmm. is, in fact, the pervasive acceptance of ableism in our culture and the acceptance of eugenic state policies towards people with disabilities and people with mental illness that made trans people vulnerable. That's what made us vulnerable. If we read this letter, it's telling us, right? It Mm -hmm. is straight up telling us. And so to imagine a politics that doesn't try to resolve and close that vulnerability by also partnering with and lifting up, you know, people with disability and disability politics. It just seems like, and and that's what I see in most of the responses to this, right? It is the ultimate failure of strategy. It's also, I think, deeply inhuman. I mean, it's just in the same way. And I take this as an axiom that I have learned from you all, right? It's like, hey, who saved the Affordable Care Act? It was people with disabilities who did all that activist work, who were showing up or putting their lives at risk, right? Um, and they managed to save things, you know, at that moment where it looked like the very minimal gains people had made in the healthcare arena were going to be taken away. And so maybe folks should be listening to what those activists have to say. And those activists are all uniformly for Medicare for all. And so it's like, you know, again, this kind of like, don't sell out the people who understand better what is at stake. And in this case, right, this analogy that's turning on transits and disability, I think, is demanding us to listen to the insights of disability activists, because they are the ones that understand this constitutive vulnerability even better, in some ways, than a kind of, you know, narrow sort of definition of this as a trans sort of wedge Mm. issue or cultural issue. Well, and I think there are also some really important lessons to learn from like the ways the disability movement has had to reconcile with the people it's left out over the years. You know, there used yeah. to be this conflict between 
um, people who are bad and people who are disabled, where you had both movements sort of asserting disabled people during deinstitutionalization, right, which is uh, Mm -hmm. still happening, hasn't totally happened. It has been going on since the 1950s, um, would say we don't need to be in these asylums with all these crazy people. Right. And the the mad the mad rights activists that were like starting to emerge in that period, some of them would re- redound to sort of the opposite argument and be like, "We don't need to be in these facilities. We're just mad. We're not disabled, right?" And so you had these sort of uh-huh. early conflicts that were going on within activism, and ultimately, like, had to be resolved. And it's still like an ongoing process. But this occurred again in the 1980s, late 1980s, 1990s, where you had. People in the disability movement asserting, oh, no, people with AIDS aren't disabled. They have like an infectious disease, right? Like <laughs> right. we're we're good. Like, you know, and, and you still have these sort of assertions that come up all the time. And, um, you know, friend of the panel, Karen Tani, she wrote about this for the LPE blogs, um, cost benefit analysis symposium so well, where Karen talks about, you know, these kind of frames that the disability movement has used over the years to assert, you know, we deserve social rights because we produce economic value, that they actually sell out people who are disabled, who don't work or can't work, right, or who are forced not to because of the conditions of their social welfare support. And these are the kinds of things that, you know, ultimately have been really difficult lessons to learn. And I think what we've seen in the last three years is, you know, this sort of broad refusal again to sort of learn these these same lessons when it comes to finding ways to be in solidarity with each other. I mean, the left has been a fucking mess during COVID, right? We've been able to Mm -hmm. coordinate on nothing. And I think part of like that is reflected in how disorganized any sort of coherent understanding of what's going on right now with these attacks on trans life. And, you know, that there's a debate that this is a eugenic campaign is, you know, astounding to me because it's all so clear if you understand sort of the the issue at play is also this kind of issue of authority, right? And what certifies authority, these kind of diagnostic categories that as you're talking about, they exist as like truths that we think are like totally real, but they also exist as historical artifacts, right? Like things mean one thing in the DSM-3, they mean something else in the DSM-4, but because of the way that sort of psychiatric power has been made to operate, particularly through the billing structures of private insurance, frankly, and the kinds of things that we had to start doing in terms of billing and coding, to justify coverage of mental health treatment, right? Like these have solidified pathologies in people's minds as these kind of, you know, uh, universal truths, right? And verifiable truths, but they're actually more these historical artifacts that can also be weaponized because they are developed to target antisocial behavior considering, you know, that illness is not just a sort of biological phenomenon, but is also a socially produced and socially determined phenomenon. But if all of our like political economy is all focused on treating health as like individual behavior and personal responsibility and you know medicalized biology only and we ignore social determinants of health and structural determinants of health and political determinants of health, we're automatically just going to have the system that is violent and churns people through these awful horrific systems where they are subjected to state control for the process of like maintaining norms that only appease, Jules, as you were saying, this very small right. conservative uh, portion of the population. Yeah. And, and, and I think that part of what you just so brilliantly outlined for us too, is that 
I mean, I think there's a way, right, that like these 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 really critical sort of readings of state power, right? And when we really attend to how much institutional violence is involved here can lead people to think like, well, what are you asking for? You just want us to tear down everything. And then what are we going to have? You know, it's like that kind of like sunk cost fallacy. But, but, but I actually, you know, understand to a certain extent how people feel overwhelmed or insecure or afraid, right? This idea that like, well, things are really bad already. I, I don't want to take the risk of losing more, right? But I think about this situation, right? And I was one of the things you're making me think about is like, my bottom line, right, in sort of like my my political critical imaginary about this is I want to radically transform the conditions of a world in which it was possible for this legal opinion and letter to be written, right? right. So I want to get rid of or abolish the situation in which there can be an analogy between, you know, affirming a trans child's gender and Munchausen's. And that means all of that, that infrastructure and history and, and armature that you just described but it doesn't mean that I'm just like some, I think there's a way that sometimes this can sound like, like a critique of liberal politics can sound like we're about to come out as like weirdo libertarians or something, right? And like, it was just occurring to me, like one of the ways that I understand a better world for trans people and including for trans youth, and I understand a different version of healthcare is actually what I've learned from personal experience with disability. I mean, I, you know, I grew up with a parent with a serious psychiatric illness who hasn't been able to work. And, you know, I grew up in Canada. And so what, you know, I'm under no illusions, like, on the one hand, one of the only reasons that my family didn't, I didn't grow up in like, extreme abject poverty and only grew up in like, significant but manageable poverty, <laughs> is that, you know, the Canadian uh, welfare state is, is you know, markedly more generous just in a literal monetary sense. And, you know, I grew up cashing checks that, you know, were meant to help take care of my dad and, you know, among other things, subsidized rent and the never having to worry about healthcare costs is one reason why, like, you know, he's still around and has been able to live, has been able to live. Um, but on the other hand, I've seen just how invasive and how immiserating the logic of that welfare state has been in his life and in and, and by extension in you know the lives of everyone attached to him and how much you know sort of his ability to make decisions in his own life has been radically limited by people who literally attach strings to the basic you know building blocks of life and mm-hmm. i feel like to my mind that has given me this really clear understanding right, of what it means to make demands for collective care and redistribution of resources outside of a liberal framework. And that really, I think, is, like, one reason why for me, as a trans woman, like, it was never hard to understand, like, yeah, of course I want free healthcare for all, but I also want to eliminate supervisory roles in trans healthcare. So I think it would be nice to be able to go to the old proverbial communist CVS and pick up my hormones (laughs) for free, and let the pharmacist give me, you know, send me to get my blood work done upon my request with no questions asked and for it to all be free and for me to therefore achieve a modicum of bodily autonomy, right? And so it's not to say that I think like I want the state 
to disestablish whatever. Like, I, I'm not a political theorist, so I'm not going to, like, spout on what I think, like, an ideal society is vis-a-vis state power. But, like, <laughs> I want there to be collective modes of care and equitable distribution of resources to maximize forms of bodily autonomy, you know, in the communities in which, you know, those people are directly affected, much in the same way that, like, I wish that, you know, my father had had access to more resources throughout the course of his life, but I also wish they had not been so insidiously attached to regulatory strings that really limited his, like, ability to imagine actualizing a sense of desire about, like, what he would like to do with, you know, do in his life. And, you know, so too for me and my gender. And so I think, like, there are, you know, other logics of care, accountability, resource distribution... Mm-hmm. and bodily autonomy that are super easy to imagine. And, right, like, I think we could easily come up with a much better situation than the one we're in that we're facing in Texas, but we could also come up with a better situation than the one we're facing if we return to that status quo. And I guess, like, a question that I sort of have, especially, I mean, it's, like, a question that I have as a historian, like, in the wake <laughs> of five centuries of Western fucking shenanigans around the world but like (laughs) but more narrowly that i have in the last two years coming out of the pandemic and i'm like at this moment of just widespread planned neglect deliberate overexposure to to risk and death right and just the complete torching of the of the idea of public health the fact that not only in the u.s but even in canada for example not a single new hospital has been built. Not a single right. extra nurse has been trained. Not a single healthcare professional has been paid what they're doing. We've done nothing to transform the actual planned uh, scarcity system that has is responsible for our elevated misery, you know, um, widespread transmission of COVID risk for, you know, long-term complications and death, right? We've done nothing about that. Why, after two years of that, are people basically like, you know, I just really want to move on. I, I, I did good. I wore my I wore my masks for two years, and I, I thought I'm good. a good person. Yeah, let's, right? the like, world doesn't have joy unless I see no, people smile. No, right. but, this is and, the, but it's also like the world doesn't have joy unless I go back to paying my monthly premiums. <laughs> uh, the world doesn't have joy unless I go back to not having. Uh, paid sick leave, I guess. Yeah. Like the world doesn't have joy. Like this is the thing that I think is like there. There are two two thoughts. Like why why are we not transitioning to thinking about uh this stuff? Like one, you know, if you look at the moments where like societies have learned anything about how shitty they are, uh, <laughs> it happens to be the case that like they didn't have institutions that you know lots of lots of people had like vested interests in like defending there wasn't you, like th- you realize you were shitty but it was possible to realize that because you didn't have like an institutional apparatus around uh that was i don't know really making the argument that you were great you know i just think it's like or you had one but it wasn't very strong and pretty easy to topple uh because it was very obvious that you failed um now we have you know plenty of institutions that like are very indebted to the idea that like no, I mean, we're great. We were already great. And we put on masks for a while and there were some people who died. But in the end, we were all pretty great. Like, that's a big, seemingly a big part of it. I feel like the other part of it is like, to the extent that people think about the welfare state at all, theoretically, mm-hmm. uh, in any sort of sophisticated way, it's they see it as a system of social provision and stratification. 
So you can judge welfare states, I guess, by how much they provide, i.e. how generous they are to people in terms of monthly payments on this or that, or how much they continue to stratify people by class or, you know, create fragmentation within classes. But all of that would seem to completely ignore everything that we've been talking about for the last hour. We don't think about, we think about how welfare states stratify people or decommodify things, but we don't think about whether or not they allow people to experience greater or less bodily autonomy. So you can Mm -hmm. have welfare states that are really generous and really uh, expansive in their provision, but still don't actually allow people much bodily autonomy. And I think the argument of the sort of, you know, libertarian left is sometimes that, okay, you allow this state in and then, okay, by providing more generous uh, social support, you immediately lock into more superintendents uh, and less autonomy. But it's like that's that both of those things are chosen simultaneously. Um, and, you know, by the way, we're bad on both, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, maybe sort of here's my kind of bottom line. And this is something that I wish it were easier to say more broadly, right? Like this is the op-ed I can't write for the New York Times. So thank mm. you for for inviting me to a place where I can Please. say this. <laughs> and it goes it goes something like this, right? I do not believe that there is joy in saying like, you know, I don't want the state of Texas to remove trans kids from their homes. I just want to go back to the good old times <laughs> when trans kids had no access to healthcare to begin with. Only a couple of rich white families were able to afford, you know, the means for their kids to be affirmed. And we just sort of leave it to the Russian roulette of whether or not kids are safe in their families and at schools. And, you know, if they survive their childhood, hashtag it gets better, calling (laughs) calling on you again, Mr. Dan Savage, then kids get to basically be trans when they're adults. And la-di-da-di-da, Elliot Page is hot. I liked his abs on Instagram. Look, that doesn't spark joy for me. And... I don't want to live in a world and I would like to bring about the transformation of a world in which these vulnerabilities are there in the first place, the original vulnerability of the status quo that led to this intensification. And after two years of pandemic, I simply see no reason not to demand and imagine that transformation as big as, as capacious as the scale of violence and harm that is currently being transacted against my will, but in my name, Hell because yeah. I am yeah. a part of this world. And I don't want to just stop the state of Texas from openly abusing trans kids to then go back to, we are all harming trans children every single day because we don't actually want them in the world. Yeah. And I do want there to be trans kids in the world. And the reason that I'm able to say that is because I am not ashamed to be trans and I'm not ashamed that there are trans people in the world in the same way that I am not ashamed that there are people with disabilities in the world. I'm not ashamed of mental illness. I'm not ashamed of these things. And so therefore I am able to want them and able to say that they are goods in and of themselves and that they can generate the means to a world in which, you know, we were to take care of one another in ways vastly less harmful than we pretend to do now. And I think until we get to a place where people are not, hiding, Mm. not cowering Mm. in their shame to openly embrace the people who are being harmed every single day in their names. We are not going to break 
this cycle of harm politically, but we are not even going to begin to touch the everyday, organized, massive, but disavowed harms that we are participating in. You know, by, by, you know, often against our will, but nevertheless, we all bear responsibility. We are harming trans kids right now. It is happening. We are responsible for that to the extent that we choose not to act. But if we choose to act only on the very narrow terms in which they are being represented as in peril today, then we are hiding in our shame at the fact that we have still not learned to build a world big enough and strong enough to smile upon and say yes to the fact of what trans children want. And for us to say that we want them in the world is to build that world for them and to concede that they are people who deserve that, that basic modicum of recognition that then behooves us to do better. And I think that until mm -hmm. we have a fundamental reckoning on that basic level, I just don't see things getting better. And I hate to say it, but I see us reuniting here on the pod every single fucking year to have this conversation in some ways. And I, that's not to say I'm not grateful for the conversation, but like, yeah. you know, there's a kind of just like, I don't know what people, uh, you know, my personal feeling is like, I don't know what people want anymore. What do, what do you want? Do you want me, how do you want me to slice and dice the direness of the situation that we're in? You know, because the one thing I'm not in the business of doing is patting us on the back at the end of the day. And I include myself in that, right? I mean, you know, it's like, I'm really angry. And one of the reasons I'm really angry is because I hate how helpless I feel in the face of an extermination of the entire population of people that I am a part of. I don't yeah. want to see yeah. trans right. kids subject to the kinds of harms that they're being subject to. I don't want to see them sacrificed at the altars of the shallowest, stupidest political <laughs> battles. But I also don't want to see them, more importantly, harmed in all of the other ways that don't even show up in yeah. headlines, that aren't even right. on the radar of politicians, the things that they just take for granted as yeah. normal business as usual. And I have to say that I do not actually believe that we collectively are unaware of this. I believe that we collectively choose not to own responsibility for it because we are in part ashamed, but it is a shame that we have learned to live with. So until I see people really break from that more broadly, deeply, and collectively, I am going to continue to be pissed off, but I'm also going to continue to say that we have collectively failed and we continue not to deserve the trans children in this world. We do not deserve any access to them. We do not deserve to know them. We do not deserve any responsibility for their lives. And I really do think we should be ashamed for the way that we've treated them, but we need to use that shame as a means to act differently. Yeah. Hell yeah. Thank you, Jules. Thanks, that Jules. I didn't mean to... to <laughs> I hope you know I wasn't yelling at, at, at you all. No, <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, you know, I just, I, I, as hard as it is, you know, to, I, I'm just tired of being dispassionate. And, and I really think the time has come for us to, to demand better and to work, work differently. And, and I think we have, I think what we've heard here today is that we have all the ingredients we need. We already know what to do. Right. There's nothing, there's no riddle here, right? <laughs> we aren't actually stumped. We just need enough people to step up and admit what's really going on and take responsibility and start acting. And then I think we could really start to do something and build a better, different world. So thank you all for, for, for helping me make that point. No, thank you. I mean, it's, 
it's the it's the perfect bottom line. I don't think we need to say more. It kind of puts the right end cap on this episode, I feel like. So if people want to follow Jules, uh, they can find you at GP underscore JLS on Twitter. And it's um, sadbrowngirl.substack.com, correct? It sure is. If you love um, my... Uh you know, unplanned uh, moralizing sermons. <laughs> You'll find that I've got a lot of them out there. So you get a pulpit. I love it. That's right. Old pulpit, robe, candles. <laughs> I mean, the robe is gorgeous. It's pink velvet. Um, yes. You know, the hair is big. The coils, the volume. It's lovely. I have fabulous jewelry. I mean, we're just we're really working the whole look. Love it, church. It's perfect. And hopefully soon, you know, we'll be able to have you on for some like fun, more fun reasons when one of your many uh, exciting projects comes out. But thank you so much for coming on today, Jules. It was really such such an honor. Well, thank you. There's, you know, actually nowhere else I would rather have this conversation. So Aww. thank you. And thanks, everyone, for for tuning in and, and hopefully really opening themselves up to the implications of what we all had to say. Patrons, thank you so much for your support. We could not do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism and request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. We will see you later in the week in the main feed. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.